Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's episode is another first, and if you are a regular listener, you will know that I love bringing you firsts on this show. And today's first is because I get to give you part two of a story that one of my guests started way back at episode two of Climbing Consulting. Now, if you've been listening to the show since then, you will know that my second ever guest was Dom Morehouse, founder of Morehouse Consulting. And as Dom explained in his interview, he eventually sold the business to BT before departing in 2011. Now, I know that many of you have wanted to find out what happened to Morehouse since then. And to tell you part two, I reached out to today's guest to see if he would come on the show. I'm very pleased to say he said yes. And we had a great interview all about the second chapter of Morehouse. So who is it? Who was today's guest? Well, today's guest is Richard Gould, managing partner at Morehouse, the dynamic consulting firm focused on delivering change. Over the past eight years, Richard has spearheaded the people and talent agenda at Morehouse, championing the focus on developing extraordinary leaders. He is known for his commitment to developing agile and courageous companies that have the ability to recruit, develop, and excite their people. 
Having joined the firm as one of their new leadership team in 2009, when Dom sold the business to BT, Richard was part of the group that successfully led a management buyout from BT in 2014 with the goal of growing the business and taking it to the next level. This growth led to Richard and the team selling Morehouse for the second time to Explio in 2018. In our conversation, Richard shares the journey he's been on with Morehouse and how he and the leadership team have continued to grow the firm since Dom left. As my first guest who has been part of a management buyout, we go into detail on this and we spend a good chunk of the interview talking about this. So advance warning, if you aren't interested in the technical side of a management buyout, the financing, how they arranged it, how it all came about, the first half of the interview might not be for you. But as it's a topic I've never covered with anyone else on this podcast, I really wanted to cover it because I'm sure there are some of you out there who are thinking about it. And Richard's advice on how the process worked and what he'd do differently, I'm sure will be invaluable to you. But this interview isn't just focused on that financial side. And so if you are less interested in that, go right to the second half of this interview, because that's where we also dive into Richard's management philosophy, his approach to leadership, and his advice on developing a successful career in consulting. I really enjoyed this conversation with Richard. It was great to hear him talk about the second half of the journey, hear the journey he and the team have been on, and learn about where Morehouse is now. I got a ton from this, and I'm sure you will too. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Richard Gould. Hi Richard, welcome to the show. Hi Nick, good to meet you. So I, I'm really looking forward to this, firstly because of how highly you've come recommended from Karina Brown and James Stitchbury. And I know you talked at some of their events and I'm sure we might come on to sort of how you use their product and what you do with them. But equally because one of my first guests, as you well know, was Dom. So the founder of Morehouse, who who told us the story up until obviously he he departed. And I'm really, really looking forward to hearing the story since he departed, which is obviously what you'll be able to share with us. So before we go on to Morehouse, though, I'd be fascinated to start with actually how you got into consulting. Because I, I understand you didn't take the typical sort of university grad scheme route. And actually, you came at it from a completely different angle. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. So I left university. I joined the police for a while. I moved from the police into the Woolwich to support them on IT projects. And that was uh, 1999, 2000, when they were doing the Year 2000 program. We got through that, as did every other organisation. And I moved on to one of their mobile phone banking programs. And the Woolwich at the time was one of the, the leaders in the use of banking technology. And I was fortunate enough to uh, project manage that piece of work alongside some colleagues who did um, internet banking. Implemented that successfully. I think as a result of that, or one of the, the the key results of that was the Woolwich being taken over by Barclays. And it didn't take long after Barclays acquired the Woolwich for a number of people to get a little bit uh, disenfranchised by being part of a massive global banking group. And simultaneous to that, KPMG reached out to all bar one of the uh, banking technology team and took us all on board. So I joined KPMG and I joined at a time when financial services took a real hit. I moved over to the public sector part of the business and spent the early part of my consulting career in local authorities. I then moved back into financial services. KPMG was acquired by Atos Origin 
I decided I didn't want to be part of a big managed service consulting firm and left to join a small consulting firm, which was Hedra at the time. And I spent probably the best part of five or six years there until that was acquired by Michelle. And typically, as, as we've seen time and time again, consulting firms acquired by large organisations tends not to work. And it didn't work. And I decided to move back to KPMG with some of the senior team who were at Hedra at the time. And that was really stark for me because I had fond memories of KPMG having spent a long time there previously and grew up from you know, being a senior consultant to a director there. And to go back felt very different having been in a small firm where agility and transparency and uh, openness were you know, prevailing traits for everyone in the firm. And I found KPMG very hard for a year. I'm glad I did it because it got it out of my system. And it was during that time that I was approached to join Morehouse. And it was with scepticism I opened up those conversations because being part of a big firm, you've got the security, you've got the knowledge, you've got the network, and and you've got the big brand that you can fall back on. And I hadn't come across Morehouse before, but meeting with Dom and meeting with some of you know, the other directors there, it was clearly a very, very good, sound business, which had some you know, huge potential so I was intrigued and that from being intrigued I, I, I went through the process and I was offered the job and then stuttered a little bit actually in terms of really not knowing whether that was the right thing to do. Stuttered as in before you took the job? Yeah so having received a call from Dom and I was on Victoria Street at the time and it was a very strange conversation because it was a, a congratulations conversation and I was probably a little bit hesitant and I'm not sure what Don made of that actually and it was a very reflective moment for me and more so because I was joining a team of people who I didn't know I, I knew no one and and it was the uh, first time that I'd ever moved into an organization where I knew no one. So how did because there's so there's a lot to dig into in this how, how did that conversation come about was that just a, a headhunter that called you how, how did that first sort of reach out happen so it's very strange actually it was a colleague who was involved in the recruitment process who I'd worked with previously had suggested that you know I may be a good candidate to talk to okay and it was Penner who reached out to me and I remember the process and it was I thought the the process going back into KPMG was hard but Dom and his colleagues certainly put us put us through the ringer and I remember doing an inbox exercise where you had to sit in Penner's office and get through what could have been up to 100 emails and they would monitor what it was you said and how you prioritised your responses and everything else. Yeah, is it a good way to assess or not? I'm not sure, but I managed to secure the job, so I'm, I'm not going to be overcritical about it. And help me, just for, for my listeners' benefit, place where you, you were in terms of, I use grade just because it's the thing that works for most people, is what grade were you transitioning to or coming into from at KPMG into Morehouse at, just so people can place you? Okay, so I was a director in the performance and technology team in KPMG, uh, pursuing the typical partner route where that partner carrot was forever being moved out into the distance and became smaller and smaller but the demands and requirements on me were greater and greater and it was an inflection point for me because we'd just been through the partner candidate development center and you know big questions around who was on it how many spaces there there were and the sharp elbows were out and as sharp as ever and you know, the opportunity to join Morehouse as you know a leader in that business and a director in that business was very interesting because you know being a director and a leader in a firm like Morehouse was very different to being a director in a 
partnership where even if you become a partner, you've got seven, eight, nine levels above you and it's only consensus that allows you to you know, make decisions and it can be a very slow decision-making process. So, And I want to come back to, because I, I jumped in, but you... I love the picture you painted around the phone call you took from Dom and you know the, the word you sort of stuttered. You know, you'd, you'd done this hundred inbox exercise or the hundred email inbox exercise. You'd gone through all through the ringer and you paused. What was it that made you pause? And then what, if you can recall, were some of the questions or the process you went through to to ultimately decide it was the right thing for you? So why did I pause? I think it was the the reality of having to make a real decision and moving from a the security of a large corporate consulting firm to a smaller firm making the decision to reduce my base salary because you know a smaller firm needs to motivate and incentivize people in a different way and you know the opportunity for doing something amazing with Morehouse was attractive but you know I'd always come up through a very pessimistic route of jam tomorrow may not always come so I remember Richard Holroyd, who was the chairman of Morehouse and the senior person in BT, saying to me and the other guys who joined, you've got to do it, there's gold in those hills. And we, we thought that naively, actually, at the time, that we could get to an MBO transaction within 12 to 18 months with BT. And um, on hindsight, it took three years. And trying to convince a large FTSE 20 global firm that the business that they bought because they really needed was not really the business that they needed anymore when in fact they really did need it was not as straightforward as as you would want but I'm pleased we had the conversations up front as part of the recruitment process about the the need for Morehouse to become independent for it to be attractive to us because none of us wanted to move from a PwC or an EY or a KPMG to join a BT but we were happy to do that with a clear route out into private ownership. Oh, so that had been on the... So, so when you were coming in for the recruitment conversations, that was always a part of the... Like you said, part of the sort of agreement would be that that would be something you and the leadership team do. There was a known opportunity there for the MBO. Absolutely. And we were really fortunate because the chairman of Morehouse, Richard Holroyd, was very open and transparent around that. And you know, we didn't know whether he would continue to have the mandate for that kind of decision and with an ever-changing revolving door of senior people in in large corporates you never really knew that having served your notice period in your first day of joining a new organization whether it'd be the same people there but um, it was and you know three years after we we managed to conclude on on an mbo having learned a great deal along the way so and we will come on to to the mbo i'm intrigued to go really all the way back to the beginning and it's it's actually that first move, and if it's not a if it's not a particularly interesting or insightful story, stop me. And we, we'll move on. But that move from the the police and help me when you say police, are we talking sort of on the beat yeah. with the Met? Was that In right? Met, yeah. So so that to me at least feels like quite a big jump. What led to you wanting to make that that jump, and actually how did you make it? Because it, it's quite a big transition. So for me, it was a realization that a career in the police was probably not going to be the sort of career that I wanted to pursue and a desire to do something that was more intellectually challenging and the ability to work with larger groups of people helping others who had a need for the sorts of stuff that you could do and I ended up in the Woolwich as a day rate contractor 
to start with because you know back in 99 2000 those large organizations were not you know very good when it came to you know, technology skills and therefore people who could go and use excel and word were, were sought after which you you look today and it's it's strange in itself i went in and did nine months worth of contract work with them and they asked me to move to permanent i did and you know had a great time there for a number of years and i really enjoyed the working as part of teams doing transformational work and it was during my time as a, an employee of the Woolwich that we worked with Accenture uh, or Anderson's at the time and also the Barclay Partnership. I know Mark Fern, he was the partner at the Barclay Partnership who was working at the Woolwich and you know really stood out as somebody who knew their stuff was able to add value and was well respected and very collaborative as well and it's a firm I still have a great fondness for and you know when I meet candidates who are you know, that's one of the firms that I would point people to if the opportunity wasn't right with us. And, and another question that springs to mind is you mentioned around with the team at the Woolwich, you wanted, you when it was taken over by Barclays, actually you didn't want to be part of that big global corporate. And and this might be helpful for some listeners, maybe in terms of the the growth path of the KPMG consulting brand on, because so I've, I've never worked in a, a big four consulting practice, but particularly for those who've been in the industry less time, they've gone through a bit of a cycle. They hire, they expand, they sell, and they've done that a couple of times. How did, you obviously went to KPMG. How was that different from a Barclays? Because some people would think it is a large global company. And then actually, what were the differences for you the second time around that made you think, yeah, actually, this isn't for me? So the the thing that I think made the Woolwich so successful was its ability to make decisions quickly, to harness the talent that it had in its organisation. And the real camaraderie that made people strive to do exceptional things and and I have fond memories of being in a server room at half past two in the morning when you're trying to implement a new version of the mobile phone banking system to realize you've only got an hour before the kick system comes up and you'd be wiping out every cash machine in the UK if you didn't get it in before that came up and you know conversely when when I moved to KPMG it was a very rigid organization and it was very hierarchical i remember at the woolwich i was you know i was a manager there but i wasn't a senior manager i certainly wasn't a director but you know the chief exec at the time john stewart would be walking around talking to people and he knew who was doing what and the importance and significance of what they were doing on a day-to-day basis in kpmg you your peer group was predominantly your grade group mm-hmm. and maybe those who are one grade below and maybe one grade above and outside of that there was a very clear hierarchy and you you wouldn't be engaging with people who were two or three levels more senior than you without potentially cutting across somebody and you know being at the behest of you know a partner or a director who was put out as a result of that and i think that that's one of the challenges and it's, it's a big challenge for the big firms today the the hierarchy that slows them down the leadership that has grown and followed the same path as it has done for the last 20 years as well. And the real challenge they have, in my perspective, is that the leaders who have had to work very hard to get to where they are, are not incentivized to make the change that they need to make to make it a sustainable business going forward, because it really does need to be turned on its head. And if you look at attrition now at some of the more junior grades who who really work hard to get in on those graduate programs, but then after 12 or 18 months are so dissatisfied that they want to move out it's a very hard model for for them to sustain going forward Mm, yeah and i'm sure we'll come on to that it might might come out as we move on to the morehouse story because obviously you 
Dom got the business to a certain size and then you and the leadership team have, have taken it on from there and obviously recently sold the business to Explio, which we'll come on to as well. And I'd be keen to, to talk about actually how you've grown that culture. In fact, why don't we start there and we'll come on to the MBO because I'm keen, and I mentioned before we, we started recording, you're, you're the first guest that I've had on the show who has done an MBO. So we've had a number of people sell their businesses, but no one who's bought one back. So I'd like to pick up on that. But why don't we actually just follow on from that piece around, you obviously joined with the leadership team, Dom transitioned out. What it was it about the Morehouse culture that, that was so powerful that you wanted to retain? How did you develop and evolve the culture to respond as the business grew and as you needed to put new things in place to cater for the size that you were wanting to become? Okay, it's a really good question. So the, the culture of Morehouse was clearly a key part of its DNA and underpinned so much of the success that it you know, had achieved ever since you know, Dom set the business up, having left Deloitte. I've always said that what Dom and the team had done and achieved was something that I would never have been able to do. There is a unique set of skills required to build a business from nothing to the scale in which they built it and to sell it to a FTSE 20. And there's probably very few examples of organisations who have successfully you know, done that and the business still survives today. One of the challenges when you get past that tipping point of 30 to 50 people is the need to, without compromising the entrepreneurial spirit, to, to build some of the structure that is needed to take that on the next stage of its journey. And I look back with a, with a combination of regret and frustration actually that we were not able to take more of the original team on the journey with us and there was a whole range of reasons there there were some things that you know if, if I was doing the same thing again I would I would maybe do differently but on the basis that there are probably four people who remain in the firm from you know the time before we joined it's a it's a stark memory for me it's it's hard, though, when you look at what was done to the business uh, in terms of, and consciously and rightly done for the business, where you remove a leadership team and you implant a new leadership team in there. It's like taking a head off a body and putting you know, a new one on, and you're bound to get some kind of rejection, you're bound to get some kind of turbulence. But you know, what I've learned on the back of the culture that prevailed and underpinned the success of Morehouse before we joined is that Culture is a very important part of any organisation. But the important thing around culture is that you should never try and keep it static. You should never try and reverse people into a static culture. And you need to recognise that every time somebody joins or every time somebody leaves, that culture evolves in a way that ensures that that organisation remains inclusive. Mm. And how how did you manage that evolution such that you guided where it went because you know like you said when, when one person leaves one person joins it it will inevitably change but obviously you, you're very and I know you're very proud of the culture you've built here so there must have been a deliberate element to it how did you guide that culture and, and what is I'm intrigued and you said you would have changed some things so maybe the better question to ask is with hindsight what might you have done differently and what advice would you give to others looking to follow a similar path I think uh, on hindsight we probably needed to be more deliberate and clearer about the direction that we had to go on and work through a little bit quicker whether people were coming on that journey with us. We probably experienced 12 months of uncertainty and unnecessary turbulence that wasn't right for the people who decided to move on. And a number of those people, you know, are, are people that I wish had stayed in the business. But 
work is work and people move on. But what we have, what we did learn though, was the importance of the culture in Morehouse as it had evolved under Dom's leadership and the significance of that in being able to attract and develop and nurture talent. And more so than that, the recognition that the direction of travel can be shaped by an organisation and not just by the few who lead that organisation. And I think the... How so? I think it's a really interesting point. So, so for me, one of the key things has got to be the escapes. And you know, they are things that we have held firm to. And for as long as I'm in Morehouse, that is something that we will never lose. Because and just for people who may not have listened to Dom's interview, those are quarterly getaways with the team. Is that they right? are. So every quarter we get away for between one or two days. And once a year in the summer, we escape outside of the UK on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and just spend that time to re-engage, to shape strategy together, and to just celebrate achievement and enjoy the company of others and it's the one weekend a year that we ask people to give up and we believe that's important because it allows us to get a significant amount of time together to really shift the dial on where we're going and for example this the um, more recent escape that we had in Barcelona allowed us as a firm to get together and define what the UK consulting strategy is for XPO group and spearheaded by Morehouse and that's that's not something that was pushed top down that was something that was worked you know from everybody in the organization really thinking about what that means and and the real benefit of that is the customer demographic for many of our clients are people who are our more junior grade so why would you why would you turn off to listening to what they are looking for from the banks and from the pharmaceutical companies and from government departments and be in a position to replay that you know to your clients in a way which is constructive and a primary reference point yeah and it's interesting i the firms who i know who do similar to your escapes everyone says it's phenomenally powerful and positive and it almost surprises me more don't given the the data points from from yourselves and others now seem to say that is you know a, a fantastic way of doing things and you mentioned around you know it's, it's not just about the leadership team it's about bringing the team in Part of that, I, I guess, is being, as a leadership team, open to that sort of view and open to that sort of input. And I, particularly for for listeners at the sort of more senior end, actually how you fostered that culture of, you know, like you said, actually, it's obvious to you that you'd want to bring the junior viewpoint in, but I doubt that's obvious to everyone. I think this is, this is what underpins organisations who can move at pace and organisations who can attract the talent that you need for what you ultimately need to deliver today, but what you will need to deliver tomorrow. And people don't want to come and follow the direction of others. They want to feel that they understand and are able to make a connection between what they do on a day-to-day basis and the strategy of that organisation. And there's no better way of reinforcing that linkage and that understanding by getting them involved in in shaping that and it's through shaping it that they really understand what it is we do why it is we do it and the role that they can play in you know delivering great work for our clients on a day-to-day basis is there anything specific or anything focused that, that the leadership team do need to do to sustain that so i like to do my research and i spoke to one of your team before this and, and the feedback they gave me is that that you and, and the leadership team and particularly yourself are really inspirational in the way you lead and i'm always interested in comments like that because I always think there's 
a lot of deliberate work that goes behind that. You know, the the sort of films, you know, the way films presented that you just appeared on the planet and that was your gift. It rarely is the case. It might be the case. But how you foster that, use your, your colleagues with that inspirational leadership and what you do to to present that image and, and be seen to be leading the firm in that way. I think inspiration is a is a big word mm. and it, it can mean a whole range of things to different people. For me it's around creating space for others to be successful and creating the space for others to shape the journey that we are on together because it's going to be a very short journey if we are not bringing people on it with us and they decide to leave. You know, in a people business, your asset are your people and we all know how easy it is for you know, people to move around and you can hop around the big firms easily. It's the same stuff, different colour, but it's, it's pretty easy to do. Uh, what I don't want to do is spend so much time attracting phenomenal talent into the firm to lose them because we are not giving them the space to be successful and giving them the room to shape the journey that we want to go on together. Because if they're not brought into that journey, they're not going to stay on the journey. And if they don't stay on the journey, then we don't grow. And if we don't grow, then we can't realise the ambition that we want to realise. So it's pretty straightforward for me. The other thing is humility and a, and a big dose of humility. And, you know, being able to let people know that you don't know all the answers. And, you know, very rarely in a big firm would someone stand up in front of you and give across any kind of inherent message that they weren't 100% sure of the direction of travel and they had a level of confidence that people would follow. Here, I'm quite happy to, you know, put my hand up and say I don't know the answer. Because in doing so, we can quite often get to a far better answer because others will come in and share a perspective. Equally, I spend as much time with our more junior people as I spend with the senior people. And I've said before that I learn far more from our junior people than I do from our senior people. And that's not because our senior people are thick. It's because we've all grown up in the same sorts of organisations. Our reference points are all the same. They're very different, though, to the different generations who are now coming into the workplace and trying to understand what motivates them. Um, because it isn't trying to get their foot on a property ladder and to get a mortgage. It's trying to you know, make sure that they are having a fulfilling career in an organisation that really values and appreciates them. So you know, if we can, as leaders, really understand what motivates people coming to work and we can provide exciting opportunities for them to grow, develop and flourish, then we stand more of a chance of them staying with us as opposed to moving to another consulting firm who can get it right. Because I don't think people tend to move consulting firms because of money. Like money's an easy thing to compete on, but the culture is something that can really differentiate you. And that's why all credit to you know what Dom developed from that perspective. And if I look at you know one of the, the key you know, legacy batons that he passed over, and that we've been able to build on successfully, it's been the culture of the firm. I think a really good point to to make and a really good point to actually take us on to the growth journey, as you mentioned, because I said we'd come back to it. And I'm I'm keen to hear, because obviously, you know, that's the underpinnings that have enabled you to do the MBO and then obviously the, the sale from the growth on, on the other end. I'd be interested now to, to pick up on that MBO. And my questions may sound naive, and if only because I've never done one and don't know anyone who has other than yourselves. So, so please um, be kind. But It'd be really interesting for others, particularly if they're in consulting firms like where Morehouse was. And I appreciate it, it's quite a specific case study, but actually how that process worked and almost what 
you know, you mentioned there around the the chairman at the time sort of promised it, but could have changed. How you guided that, why it took longer than you had planned or hoped, and almost with you know, looking back, what would you have done differently, or what are some of those key learnings that you took from it? Yeah, <laughs> dear me, where'd you start with that? Um, I appreciate it. it's a it's, big question. It's a very big question, and the the schizophrenic side in me just recalls some of the perverse situations that you would find yourself in because having joined as a leadership team who were absolutely committed to growing that business and quite rightly growing that business but at the same time saying to BT that we can't continue to grow this business if we stay within BT and actually the skills that you need are not necessarily the skills that you know we want to be able to you know offer you and you know saying to a, a, a large FTSE organization like BT that and we were around an error on their balance sheet and that if if you don't do what you say you were going to do then we might just leave that doesn't shift the dial at all so the amount of time it took to get that into the right place was was on hindsight probably the right amount of time and having never done it before you tend to think that well someone's got the appetite to sell a business and if they've got that appetite they'll do it we need to agree on a price we need to get the money and then it's job done but it, it never it never works like that because every one of those bits around convince them that they want to sell working out the process to sell and then finding the money to, for a sale that was significant in their own right and it probably took us a good couple of years to get bt into the place where we wanted to part company as as, as an owner we wanted to absolutely protect that relationship and you know i'm really proud that today eight years on uh, bt are a significant client of ours um, as our open reach but doing it in a way that protects that relationship gets the right outcome and doesn't destabilize the business is a massive challenge because for every hour you're internally focused on trying to do a deal whether it's a an acquisition of your organization or whether it's an MBO for your organization, you're not selling work. And if in a consulting firm, you're not selling work for too long, then the typical three month cliff becomes ever closer and you can find yourself in a really difficult situation. And so I, I, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pause there because I wanna pick up, you almost mentioned a three step process where I've got tons of questions on each of them. So, and worth saying as well, I don't know how much of this is under NDA, et cetera. So stop me if we can't talk about it, but. That first point you made around convincing sounded really interesting because I I guess coming into it, I sort of thought, you know, might, maybe there's a, a reticence of BT. They bought the business, they don't want to sell it. But your, your frame was really, uh, just really hit me of actually you were a rounding error and almost you probably didn't make the board's pack to even talk about this. So how did you persuade them to sell the business to you and the management team? So it's just just reflecting on it now. Yeah, on, on, one, on one level, we, of course we were a rounding error. We were... You know, generating ten million pounds worth of revenue, and you know, for a firm like BT, that's not that's not significant contribution in the grand scheme of things. However, they valued the talent that the firm had to the point that it was one of our project managers, Salim Ahmed, who was driving the BT Linear TV, which turned into BT Sport, and uh, beneath him, he had all the big firms working for him. So, you know, BT certainly valued the talent and the contribution that we were able to make. I think the fact that every one of the leadership team who were coming in from outside were consistent in that this would not work 
indefinitely being part of BT and the only reason that we would join would be to at the right time move Morehouse out into private ownership was important there was no surprises for BT and those conversations took place with you know our chairman at the time too and we were fortunate that the ECDEC sponsor for Morehouse in Clive Selly was a very and is a very genuine and consistent person who puts people first and had very high integrity and was aware of that need to so this wasn't about trying to convince people to do something that they had never heard of before we talked about this a lot and we talked about it regularly and at board meetings we would talk about it you know really openly and we didn't want to do anything that compromised the BT business and actually as a result of the MBO process we had to leave some of our people behind because they were offered jobs by BT and that was a hard thing for us but it was something that we had to compromise on because if we dug our heels in and said that it was all or nothing the chances were it would be nothing. Oh, so and just to to clarify, that was part of the negotiation. It wasn't that they were they were poached in that sense. They were that was you know you paid whatever it was plus five people. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, there was no there was never there was never going to be a chance of us being able to push on any anti poaching because we all work for BT for all intents and purposes. So uh, they did go hard, and they went uh, probably about half the firm uh, managed to convince. A double digit number to stay with them. They, which, so is BT convinced a double digit number of your of team more, to, of stay, Morehouse Morehouse to stay at BT. Wow. But that was something that was was key actually in terms of the deal making sense from their perspective. And in any deal it needs to make sense from both sides. Yeah. So that was important for them. It was hard for us, but it was, you know, one of the ways in which we could look to try and take the business out. And on, on that deal-making side, and this, this might be the bit that you sort of stick up a red flag and say we can't talk about, but something that intrigues me, I guess, that is more is unique to an MBO that you wouldn't get in a sort of a sale is, in a sale, your goal is to get the best price, the, the buyer's goal is to get the, the cheapest price, and there's a, a bit of a conversation about what, you know, where you meet in the middle. Obviously, it's the same goals in an MBO. The only difference, and I'm intrigued how, how this played out, is as an internal business – Obviously, you're you're signing up to and pushing for growth targets that then potentially negatively impact the price you can get the business for. I'd just be intrigued how that you know it might be a too technical question, but how that tension sort of worked and how how you managed to overcome it with BT. Yeah, so that was never straightforward because clearly, when the business was sold to BT, the driver was to maximise the amount of money that could be made. The timing of it was significant because it was a, you know, the deal concluded the day before the Lehman's crash. So I didn't know that. Was that? I believe that is correct. Wow, that's um, timing for you, isn't it? And yeah, clearly, Dom did a fantastic job in in the timing around that and and everything that that went with it. But we, you know, we had to try and disconnect BT from making a direct correlation between what was paid for it at a point in time and what an organisation or us will be willing to pay for it. And mm. we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that BT went out to the market to tr- attract buyers for Morehouse. It didn't oh, go really? Stra- I didn't know that. It didn't go straight to MBO. And and whilst that was frustrating for us, it was right for them to do. You know, they're, they're a commercial organisation and they need to make sure that they end up paying a fair price for something against the backdrop of what is commercially market rate for it. And was that just just help me? Was that 
because this this might inform my next question is was that something that they did just while they were talking to you to you know make sure you were paying the right price or was that something they did before talking to you no no they did it in parallel so we had to put a bid in for the business alongside um, other people and there was an Indian outsourcer there was an LLP and I suppose on hindsight we were fortunate because we were able to be very clear that anything other than MBO is not going to work for us and any acquirer would want to sit down with a leadership team of the organization that they are buying and if we were to say that this isn't going to work for us then it's not going to run for too far that said BT uh, rightly ran a process around it that was part of the reason it took longer than you know ideally we'd want it to and then the um the twists and turns of raising the money to buy a consulting business and you know how you go about doing that uh, started in earnest and probably some of the the best lessons of my life lay in the three or four months that we went through trying to do that the one thing i, I must say one of the biggest learns from both the mbo and from the uh, acquisition of uh, SQS, which is now part of XBO of Morehouse, was the significance of good advisors. And you, you do pay for what you get. And our corporate finance team and our lawyers were phenomenal. Who, who were they, just in case anyone... Uh, so Clearwater International were our advisors and Morgan Lewis and uh, two partners there, Tom Cartwright and Lee Harding, who were absolutely phenomenal and... On both transactions, you know, this deal was minutes from falling apart on both occasions, and it would have fallen apart if it hadn't been for the advisors we had and and them challenging what we believe were red lines when in fact they may not you know, needed to have been red lines. Can you give an example of one of those? I, I mean, when it's at, it sounds like such a poignant piece. Yeah, so. Let's talk about the MBO because that, that probably follows better. We pursued private equity to raise the money for a deal and uh, we were concluding at nine o'clock on, I think it was a Wednesday morning and at midnight on the Tuesday it fell down. And it fell down on the back of a number of red lines and you know red lines were being things that we would not compromise, we would not move on, being pulled into a negotiation. And we always said that we would not compromise on the management team having full control over the bonuses of our people because we would never want to stand up in front of our people and not be able to you know, honour the commitments we've made in terms of remuneration. That was pushed quite hard. We got to a good place around that. We were pushed hard on management bonuses and we had to acquiesce on that. But then there were other things that it felt that we were being put over a barrel to somewhat at the you know, last minute because they knew the deal had to close. They knew if it didn't close, the chances were that it would go. And we, we stood firm, actually, and we walked away. And that was probably one of the biggest decisions uh, you know I've been involved in making because you, know, you walk away from a deal you, you really do not know what's coming the next morning but in all credit to the to the you know great team that you know I'm part of and were, were instrumental in that deal we, we 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 stood together and we we um, walked away from it and you know what played out was a phenomenal scenario which meant that we managed to raise the money through you know ourselves and you know, remortgaging 
Oh, really? So the, the, the finance ultimately came from the, the leadership team? It did. Uh, a combination of um, some deferred consideration from BT, mm-hmm. so a loan note that we repaid over a number of years, um, invoice discounting, and again, one of our advisors put us in contact with Shawbrooks, and we were, we were able to raise some money there, and then the rest of it was real skin in the game. And I bet there were some very interesting conversations that took place with um, bank managers and you know, partners at home in, in those two hours. And we managed to do that. And within a week, we'd got to where we wanted to get to. And, you know, I thought that it was a massive hit moving from KPMG and taking a, a haircut on my base salary. But having funded an MBO and knowing that you could have been in a pretty disastrous place if you were not able to take that business to the next level for the next three years was a very sobering, sobering moment, actually. And I'm, I'm fascinated about that part particularly because I talk to many people who, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's sort of, I'm going to go out contracting or I'm going to launch a business or you know, I don't think I've any, spoken to anyone quite in that position, but there's always a reason not to do it. And I'd be fascinated particularly around the, that almost that week and the conversations between you and the, the leadership team, because almost my, I'm sure the, P, you know, the, the private equity firms you were dealing with would have made you put a bit of skin in the game but suddenly it had gone from a little bit of skin to you know the, the frame you put on it there we've got to do this guys were there any tensions in that suddenly that was you know, that wasn't what some people had signed up for or that completely shifted it or you know the personal conversations you you mentioned there around suddenly i've got to go home to my my family and say well, we're not going on holiday for the next few years and we're remortgaging the house you know how did those those conversations go and how did you as a team get yourself comfortable you know look each other in the eyes around the table and say right guys we're we're doing this we're trusting each other we're putting it on the line i think that the strength of the team and how that team has strengthened strengthened through the mbo process meant that we can move really fast and that we didn't we didn't hit a point in time where anyone was saying i'm not doing this because it wouldn't have worked if anyone had decided they weren't doing it there was a daunting reality of you know, this is a massive decision for us but an equal realisation that as opposed to giving a majority shareholding away to a private equity firm, if we, if we you know, are really that serious and that committed and have you know, such belief in being able to you know, grow this business in the way that we'd grown it to date, then you know, this would work. Every one of us knew, though, that it would be you know, hard work and there would be some sacrifices along the way and the comfort blanket of being part of a of a FTSE organisation that can provide a buffer when working capital may not be where you need it to be, was gone. So that said, we moved quickly and there wasn't a point in time where there was a significant disagreement or falling out around how we would make it work. Mm. And you know, people got together very quickly and just shared ways in which they were making it work. So different conversations or similar conversations could take place with you know, different people to ensure that we could get to where we wanted to get to. And maybe just taking it yourself then, and again, if the answer is there wasn't, you know, we'll move on, is do you remember any of those, when you you were hit with that sort of, right, we've got to find the funding somehow, this is going to be the route. Do you remember any of those questions that you asked yourself or anything that you, you know, you did to make yourself comfortable with doing that? It might have been you didn't need to, you, you know, you were fully committed throughout, but actually that what questions or, or things did you do to get yourself in that place that you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going for this? 
I think it was the momentum of the team at the time which meant that we just moved forward. We knew that if we didn't come up with a deal within days, then the deal was gone. And there was two scenarios. There was take a massive risk and work hard to ensure that there was a reward for that risk or there was a reconciliation that you need to go and find a different job. And on the basis that I didn't want to go back to a big firm and I'm a consultant and always want to do consulting, then it's do that or do something very different. So, you know, we jumped in with both feet and I think there was an element of adrenaline that kept us going and probably avoided us spending too much time hypothesizing about scenarios that could have wobbled us. Well, and I, I'm mindful of, of sort of wanting to do the whole story. And I do want to come on to the, the other end, because for I think we've alluded to it, but for those who don't know, you, you've obviously recently sold the business and so have achieved the goal you wanted. But I, I know I would kick myself and others would metaphorically kick me if I didn't pick up on what you said around, you learned the most in that three or four months around the, the fundraising piece. I'd just be intrigued, obviously, that you know, there was a big learning there around the red lines, but what were those things that stood out as the, the key learnings for you? So um, the first thing is that don't take for granted the value of a high-performing business because actually we'd grown up uh, in the firm and had nurtured the firm in a way that we'd come to expect what you know, we had achieved as being something that you know maybe everybody was doing but you know when you're sitting down talking to firms who are dealing with consulting organizations every single day you start to realize that you do do something very different and you are attractive uh, as a firm for a reason and you are successful for a reason so don't shy away from that and you know try and articulate to both those who are interested in your organisation, whether it's uh, candidates who want to join or people who want to invest uh, around why it's a, a good investment or, or why it's a good place to join. What else did I learn? It's never over till it's over. You know, there was champagne in the fridge in our lawyer's office and at nine o'clock everybody was really happy thinking that we probably had another half hour to go, but at 11 o'clock we were going our own way home with no deal and not knowing where we were going to go to. It was only the regrouping at nine o'clock in the morning as a as a leadership team where you know we realised that if we wanted to make the deal work, the only way that we could do it within the time that we had was to go and do it ourselves. And I suppose the other the other learn for me was hold firm to what's right. And compromise is important, but know where you are going to compromise and know where you're going to hold firm and hold firm to the things that are so important to your organisation that if you do compromise on them, you will be compromising on something that has far broader implications on the success of the business going forward. Yeah, and I think a really interesting and key point, and if we have time, we'll touch on sort of broader career advice, because I think you mentioned around the, the partner piece in some of the big four, if it's it's broader than just money, and you know, it sounds like that rings true as well with, with that piece. I, I'd be keen to then come to the other end of the journey, and it might be this is a much shorter piece because from everything you learned, it went much smoother, but I don't know the answer to that. So in terms of the the plan to get to the sale, how did you gear yourselves up for that? And what was it that made you sure that it was the right time to do it? Did you have, for instance, metrics of we hit a certain EBITDA and we go to market? Was it a timing thing? Was it 
they came to you. How, how did the, the conversation there start? So we remained engaged with our advisors from the MBO through, not proactively or on a retained basis, but there was you know, regular conversations that happened and they brought organisations to us you know, quite regularly that may or may not have been interesting to us. I recall our advisor saying to us that there's a ratchet when it comes to deals where EBITDA of an exit rate of 5 million a year starts to have a significant impact on the valuation of a firm. So, you know, early on we were focused on making sure that we could get to a 5 million pound EBITDA before we really looked at any kind of you know deal for us. We always knew that we would do a deal because in wanting to grow the firm and take it on the next stage of its journey, you needed to be part of a larger organisation to do that. The biggest challenge uh, personally for me was having been on the other side of two acquisitions, which went horribly wrong and not being able to point to very many reference points of organisations that had done it very well. There was always a big risk and having taken a massive risk in doing an MBO and having come out the other side of that and repaid all of our debt within the first three years, we wanted to make sure that we weren't selling the business for it to become anything other than successful. And we spoke to a whole range of organisations who were interested in acquiring Morehouse. And I remember the first meeting that I had with Martin Hodgson, who's the um, board member at XPO, responsible for consulting. And he was um, the exec director for SQS SQS at the time. And that was the organisation that was buying us. So a quality uh, business. And I was... It was probably palpable how uninterested I was in that. Lovely guy, but the proposition of reversing into a quality business was not something that my first impressions gave as being something that I'd be terribly interested in doing. However, we we met other organisations, and the one thing that stuck out with um, the SQS people was uh, no rush, guys. It's got to be right for you. If it's not right for you, then don't do it. And if it's not right for you now, then let's just keep talking. When all the others were chasing, you know, locking it down and speed. And you know, we got to, we had a number of conversations with them. And then I remember um, James Barraclough at Clearwater phoned us one day to say SQS had just been acquired by A-System Technology. And it was like, God, now what? And they were the only people in the running uh, at the time. And we thought, well, this deal's off. And all of a sudden it became a little bit interesting because you had a large French firm and a, um, a German firm and a quite some quality and some significant technology capability coming together. And they were all really interested in what Morehouse could bring to that party. And it was then that we met uh, Olivier Aldrin, who's a CEO of XBO now. And XBO came together earlier this year as one global organisation where Morehouse remains as Morehouse. And Olivier said to us in that first meeting, guys, I can promise you one thing. I will not fuck up your business because I bought two consulting firms and one has been very successful and one uh, failed at Brisbane. And it was the one I got close to that failed. And we're here today and we're 15 months in after acquisition and they have been unfailingly loyal in terms of that commitment. They've been unfailingly supportive of us as a firm to the point that last year within four months of being acquired we had the largest amount of promotions that we'd ever done in Morehouse there was nothing changed adversely to the way we run the business we have full autonomy over the business we have retained our brand 
We have full control over our performance management and our promotions and our escapes and everything else that comes with it. And we see Olivier every three months as part of our board meeting. Um, if we want to see him more, it's for us to drive. And his only challenge to us is, guys, if you need help to ensure that you grow, then please ask me. I don't want to have retrospective conversations that start with, but if we had. Yeah. And so just because I, I think it's what you're saying, but just so that sort of people are completely clear is your agreement with Olivier is fundamentally the Morehouse business operates as it does. And you know, to your point around when you were talking to SQS, you aren't backing in as part of Explio. You are Morehouse, which is a business of, but equally your own operating entity, if you like. So we agree our budgets on a annual basis, focuses on EBITDA and revenue and growth on both of those dimensions. Olivier is really keen to ensure that we are harnessing the broader capability of the group where it's right to do so. And outside of that, he wants to see us continue to grow. And he realises that you mess around with a consulting business and unless it is additive and positive, then it can start to go wrong very quickly. So I appreciate we spent a long time on the the MBO, and I don't necessarily then want to labour the technical sides of the IPO. So I think that that almost, unless you think there's anything worth us digging into, that feels like a great place to pause that. I'm intrigued then to move on to, I guess we'll frame it as diversity, but um, I know we spoke a little bit before this. Now, it's one specific area that I've not actually discussed with any other guests, and I'm always interested when I can get a topic to talk to a guest about that I've never talked to another guest about. And, and this is diversity in the sense of class. So we talk a lot about gender diversity, about ethnic diversity, about sexual diversity, which are you know all fantastic things, and we should do. The one thing that strikes me in our in our industry, and I sort of you know I, I'm sure you see it from consultant profiles, is they tend to follow a very similar route in terms of if you, know, if you look at schooling, you look at education, you sort of university. And I'm intrigued just because you know you mentioned around your your journey, and we've talked a little bit about this before of you didn't follow that traditional path, if you like. And I'd be intrigued on your take about where we are in terms of class diversity and consulting and, and what we can do to help improve it or improve diversity in general. So I think people are more aware of the importance of inclusivity. And actually, I believe that if organisations are inclusive, they will naturally be diverse. I think if we chase diversity, there's a real danger that we, we start chasing metrics that we report on as opposed to having organisations that are inclusive for the right, for the right reasons and, and benefit everyone who's, who's involved in, in those organisations. There's some way to go. And I think government is helping a little bit with things like apprenticeships. I think organisations are recognising that uh, academic qualifications in isolation are not enough. And there's a greater focus now on potential. There's certainly a great focus from our perspective on potential and we've got some phenomenal people and i spent time this morning with one of those people who you know joined us at a junior grade having uh, done an apprenticeship and never been to university and has moved for our consulting grades at a pace and is a real standout consultant and the reason that he's a standout consultant is not because of his academic qualifications it's because of his work ethic his tenacity his emotional intelligence his ability to see around corners his ability to build relationships his ability to pick himself up and you know dust himself off and learn as a result and even more so his ability to 
see where others are around him and to you know help and support them and i think we need to get to a place where we are harnessing potential we are teaching people on the job the skills that they need to be a consultant and we are encouraging people to always learn because regardless of the skills that you have if you just look at some of the research that's coming out from you know, people like linda grafton at london business school and the 100 year life the you know, average half life of a skills reduced from 20 years to five years in the last five years so wow. you know on that basis what we know today has a has a significant chance of being irrelevant in five years time so you know on that basis how much of what you would have studied at university will still be relevant to you and for you in five or ten years time well, i can i can tell you right now that most of it is irrelevant it makes me sound very clever in the pub but that's about well, and, and, that's about it and I, I i rest more on the reference points that i've gained as a consultant the network that i have as you know as a as a peer of other consultants and the things that i have learnt through some of the training events that you know we we run with people at morehouse than you know, I ever rest on, you know, looking back at my academic path. How do you structure your recruitment such that you can attract and assess those type of people? Because there feels like two challenges in there of they need to know that this exists and then your recruitment approach needs to be receptive to not just grades or, you know, the standard assessment centre approach, I guess. Absolutely. So um, I think the key difference with us is that recruitment is based around conversations and dialogue as opposed to assessment. Clearly for our junior grades we have an assessment centre but that is one relatively small component of a number of conversations that take place because it's only through conversation that you can really understand where people are coming from, where they want to go, how you can support them, get to where they want to go and the, and the contribution that they can make. And you know We've attracted some phenomenally bright people. We've attracted some phenomenally you know, capable people who have huge potential. And in the mix of a consulting engagement, they come together exceptionally well. It's something that we need to you know, continue to remain tuned into. But when I'm recruiting people, I take for granted that you know, what I need in terms of you know, intellect is there and you know that's very different to qualifications and degrees and everything else what i'm really looking for are people who can build relationships and people that i want to work with because they're nice people and they're they're self-aware they're resilient and they're humble and this might be a, a too technical question in the recruitment space so, so tell me if it is but i'm i agree with the approach i'm just intrigued in terms of you know, if you look at the different funnel stages of you've got the job ad, you've got the CVs in, you've got the then you go into sort of more conversational approach. How do you make sure that enough people or the right people are getting to that point to have those conversations? So how do you assess intellect, I guess, before you're speaking to people? How, how does that part work to enable you to fill the funnel with enough of the right people for the conversations? CVs are an important part of that. I think we will see an increasing use of video CVs going forward where where people are talking about themselves and sharing their experience and what they're able to offer you know through a video as opposed to a piece of paper. The best CVs for me are punctuated by periods of getting off your backside and just getting into the workplace and doing stuff in between any breaks that you have. It's characterised by people bringing to life what they do as much outside work as what they can do inside work. You don't need to have a degree to write a good CV. And 
what you do need to be able to do is to make sure that your CV brings to life you as a person and the contribution and value that you're able to give to an organisation that you really want to join. You know, the, the people who who get recruited at Morehouse are those who have you know done their research but can hold good conversations and have good social skills and are good at being human and you know you, it's easy to laugh at that but you know the skills that make you know, good people mm. so you know the empathy and everything that goes with it so you you, you touched on a point there um and I, it brings us on to another topic that I, I was really keen to get your thoughts on as well which is you mentioned around you know, they do as much outside of work as inside of work and i think having re- done my research for this episode and some of the things you you shared as well you know you, you've done quite a lot outside of work so you're uh, a judge or a magistrate I, I'm, I'm a magistrate sure. yeah i i didn't know this until we started talking but championship grade referee in football which you know is obviously a, a very high standard to get to for those pieces i also am i right you go to schools to talk on careers and advice or is that i a, do so i mean this is where we start to run into the time challenge of we've got a lot to talk about and not enough time so i'll let you pick the most interesting of Almost, I'd be fascinated why you did or continue to do those and why for you it's a, an important thing and what, what it's helped you with in terms of your life or your, your career. Okay, so, so the easy one is uh, I no longer referee. I think there's a combination of age, fitness and just getting a little bit worn down by people calling you everything under the sun every Saturday and Sunday. So, and, and the need to focus on you know, a young family wanting to spend time with them too against a backdrop of you know, consulting, not being a nine-to-five job, so mm. you can't fit everything in. Why magistrates? I've been a magistrate for uh, coming up to 11 years now, based uh, in the South London justice area, so sit at Camberwell and Croydon. And why do I do that? It's, sometimes it's hard to switch off from consulting, but if you're you know, refereeing a game of football or you're on, on the line at a game of football, you need to switch off. And likewise, if you're in court and... You know, dealing with somebody who you know could face a period of imprisonment, you've got to be switched on to what's happening there and mm. switched off to every other distraction. I find it one of the most humbling experiences, actually, because the nature of the criminal justice system is such that I think in this country we're fortunate that most of the time there are enough checks and balances that it goes the right way, especially compared to other countries. And the magistrate system is such that... Every single criminal case goes through a magistrate's court at some point before it gets to the Crown Court or the Old Bailey. And it's local justice and making sure that the right decisions are made by, you know, people who are able to, you know, really understand some of the, the local social challenges and are able to make informed decisions based on, you know, reference points that they're bringing from outside to inside a court, I think is important too. It faces a massive challenge because the demographic and the age profile is is such that it's not as balanced as it needs to be. And, you know, when I joined the magistracy 11 years ago, I was probably one of the youngest magistrates. I'm probably not quite one of the youngest now, but there's still far fewer people behind me than there are ahead of me. And, you know, we need to get that balance right because it is a, a key tenant of society. And being able to give something back through being a magistrate, I find, you know, personally very rewarding. But as I said you know, equally humbling, but um, sometimes more so, even more frustrating because it does really bring to life some of the, the cracks in the social structure. 
and some of the ways in which we let people down where the first intervention you know can be appearing in court because we haven't caught them early enough and you're you're left trying to you know put people back together and reconcile the prospects of peers in custody when some kind of social intervention in advance would have been better and you only need to pick up a paper now and see the challenges around knife crime in society to really bring that to life we see far too many young people coming to court now for possession of a bladed article where the minimum sentence is six months in custody it's black and white you carry a bladed article you go to prison for six months you know surely we should be putting more money into educating these young people so they don't even hit the court system and it's a real tragedy that you know eight months into the year 67 um, young people under the age of 18 have died of a lot of knife crime in london and a large majority of those were killed with knives that they were carrying themselves really? so there's a massive challenge for us in terms of educating our young people around things like that and yeah are, you know i like to think that i'm able to try and do a little bit about it and that's part of the reason why going back into schools and trying to bridge that gap as well because we've got some massive change in our education system our education system is focused on you know, standards and the qualifications not focused on equipping people with the social skills that they need to be successful in the world of work and you know equally if there's something like i can do by going back into schools and helping them understand what that transition looks like from you know, 16 18 or, or 21 after a degree into the world of work and how you can you know land in in the best possible way then you know i find that personally rewarding as well so i, I just want to dig into that school piece because I think it will, it'll all come together of, of when you say go into schools I think it, the, the magistrate's piece I think seems quite clear the what is it you you are doing is it you're you're talking in assemblies about careers about like, like just try and place that for me yeah so it's typically assemblies so people who are just completing their GCSEs or going into sixth form and then again those who are in their final year of A levels and a number of schools now do these programs as part of their career plans and they, they like to bring people from outside in just to talk about their experiences and what they look for when they're recruiting people and you know I tend to go in and spend an hour or an hour and a half just talking about my life as a consultant my career some of the things I'd do differently if I had my time again and some of the the real skills that are important for employers and that people shouldn't lose sight of. Because I think both of those sort of come back nicely to you know, to your point around society and for those in our industry, what can they do, particularly people like yourself who are in senior leadership positions? Because, you know, even things like that school talk, how can firms, because well, we're in central London, so when you're talking about things like knife crime in London, you know, most major consulting firms are based within this two miles and then the places you're talking about are based within the two or three miles around that. So what should people like yourself be thinking about if they want to make a difference? What can they do to help? So reach out directly to schools, you know, write to head teachers, um, send them a message on LinkedIn, um, lean into the schools, uh, you know, your your children or your nieces or your nephews or the, or the schools that you went to because I'm sure that they will embrace any sort of contribution that we're able to, you know, make as you know, business leaders or, or actually anyone in the world of work because it's a massive transition. And, you know, I, I don't envy the generations coming out of school now, you know, that they, they will be that fifth generation in the workplace competing with people who are, you know, not necessarily the same you know, age profile of those that they grew up with. You know, you will have people that, 
45 or 50 looking to start their second careers alongside people who may be 21, 22, 23. And believe me, the people who are the 40 to 45 will have you know, more experience in the world of work than you will. So how do you stand out and how do you make sure that you know, you're able to demonstrate that regardless of your, of your academic qualifications, you're able to you know, work well and mm. work well with others? Yeah, and it's uh, so I've just been recruiting for my business, and it, it, it's amazing the like you say the life skills and just the the people skills that surprising. I was genuinely shocked at the lack of them by some of the candidates I met, and it is surprising. But like you say, you know, actually that that Linda Grattan research, I'll get the if you can share the link afterwards. I'd love to put it in the notes. Is that's really powerful because I think it, you're spot on in that as skills change and as people as that acceleration happens, actually, you're no longer, you know, the job for life, you, you go into whatever it is and do that for 20 years or 30 years and you know, get your pension. That doesn't happen anymore. And so I mean, it's a, I, I never thought of it like you say, you're not just competing with the other 18, 21 year olds, you're competing with the, the 30, the 40, the, the 50 year olds as well. Who may have been in that organisation for a long time. And it, it takes you back as to why the LLP model for consulting is is facing some real turbulence. Because when I joined KPMG, in 2000, I'd reconcile myself to the fact that this could be a really interesting career. And actually, the prospect of being a partner in a big firm and the opportunity and reward that comes from that, albeit in 10 years' time, was really quite attractive. Now, it's just not there. There's no straight line. It's not you start here and finish here. It's, you know, people uh, navigate their own paths. And they probably switched off by people saying, well, this is what I did, so this is what I think you should do. Uh, it's around helping people you know, navigate their own career. And as a leader, it's been that benevolent hand on their back acting as a as a tailwind that helps them move in the right direction. And I think that's really important. It wasn't a topic I was going to touch on, but I'd be intrigued because you mentioned it right back at the start around the fact that the, the workforce now, you know, your junior team coming in, their goal is not to own a, a house and a BMW. You know, and, and actually that, how firms... Well, be it LLPs, be it yourselves, respond to that that structure where, like you say, the sort of even my generation, there was still and still is, you know, a bit of cachet around. I'll make partner, I'll you know, make all my money and sail off into the sunset. But actually, I think that's dramatically, and I, you know, I've got a small sample, but from the sample I know, dramatically reducing. And I can imagine it's only further the more junior people. Is what do you have to do to to respond to that and and change that that carrot so it's not just the you know, slog for 10 years, make partner and, and sail off into the sunset. God, a lot in there, Nick. Um, people want to be excited and feel engaged in the business that they're working in. As I said, you can't compete on money now. People want to feel they're being paid the right amount for what they're doing, but they want to feel that they are part of something that they can shape and influence and contribute to, and they want to feel that they're always learning as well. The different motivators... And, and probably the more intrinsic motivators as opposed to the extrinsic motivators means that you know, people make decisions far quicker. People have you know, more disposable income because they're not tied to a mortgage or a car loan and everything that goes with it. I'm increasingly having conversation with people on a, on a regular basis now around, you know, I want to take two or three months out because I want to go travelling and they're able to do that because they're not tied to a mortgage and they can just turn their rent off for, for that period of time. So... As an organisation, we need to recognise that our workforce wants different things and different parts of our workforce want different things because you will have some people who do have a mortgage and want to pay it off and just want to you know, 
see that light at the end of the tunnel. You'll see you'll have others who unless they are feeling that they are growing and developing and being stretched, will go somewhere else to grow and develop and, and be stretched. And for us, that's where our investment in learning development has really been important to us. And uh, you know, I, I think we'll need to continue to be a differentiator for us because on the basis that unless you're learning, you're, you're not growing and you're not developing and, and there's a real risk that your personal value going forward is, is diminished, then you know we need to make sure that everybody has the ability to learn all of the time and that's not just about pulling people in to sit in a classroom and and be spoken to it's around equipping them with uh, the different tools and 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 resources that are available to help them do that mm. it's a really interesting point you make around the almost the currency of growth as opposed to the currency of of money and i think when you frame it with that linda grattan research well if, if you're not growing in five years you're you're going to be redundant and that's, that can be a big challenge. So I, I'm keen to also touch on, because we, we talked about things you, you've done outside of work, and it, it might tie quite nicely into there. I know, and, you know you mentioned around helping people with that sort of benevolent hand and, and something you've you've recently done. And I bring it up only because you're you're the second guest who has done this. So I'm intrigued about, about the rationale because I think it, it could help others, which is you've become a qualified coach. And I'd be interested again in almost why you did that and how that's benefited you and why others in your position might want to do it you certainly done your research nick because i think i'm i'm um 10 days into qualifying uh, or being accredited as a coach i think that coaching is one of the most important skills you can have as a leader and being able to ask questions of others that encourages or enables them to reach the right answer themselves is a great skill to have it's very easy to direct as a leader it's very easy to give people the the answer and ask them to do what they now need to do to get to that answer themselves but it's sometimes very hard to ask the questions that allow somebody to learn themselves and I think we need to be really clear around the difference between coaching and mentoring as well because they're very mm. different too. You know, coaches do not necessarily have the uh, the experience or, or the skills necessary to do the role that someone is trying to do. On the other hand, a mentor is and can provide reference points that helps them. But I, I think as we as we really invest in developing, you know, others, being able to coach people alongside, you know, managing and leading mm. is, is going to be increasingly more important, especially when... There is that learning culture that people are hungry to you know, grow as part of. And you, you made the point there, and I just for, for maybe those who have aren't so familiar with coaching around it, coaching and mentoring are different. And I think you you hear a lot in the world of work now about mentoring and its importance. And almost for those who are at any stage, what is it that you get from coaching that's that's different? And why might someone want to seek out a, a coach? I, I think... The difference between a coach and a mentor from my perspective and the benefits of a coach is that you have somebody who is able to really challenge you to think about what it is you want to be doing, where you want to be going, and the best way for you to get there. And you are the person who holds those answers. Sometimes you just need somebody who can challenge you through good questions to help you get there you know, yourself. And you know some of the best coaches that I've had are, are have been the people who are you know really comfortable with silence and will ask you the question that you don't really want them to ask you, 
and leave you there to really work it through yourself. It's very easy to give people, you know, an answer, but is that answer the right thing for them? You know, if people can work through the dilemmas and the challenges themselves and can be assisted to get to the right place through effective coaching, I think that's a far better way for people to learn and develop. That's not to say that there's not a role for, you know, mentors as well, because I think people having a good network of people around them who can help them based on those people having similar reference points to them or having done similar roles to them or working in similar organisations to them is immensely beneficial too. And does that have to be, and I think you alluded to it, but again, this is more for people who maybe aren't, aren't familiar with it, is does a coach, because mentors are obviously people above you, so you might mentor junior people in, in Morehouse. Do, does that relationship have to be the same for coaching? Is it that to be coached, the coach needs to have been someone like yourself you know I guess sort of butcher a sports metaphor the coach must have been a player or is it that actually it's more about a skill set of coaching that if I was looking for a coach it's about their skills as opposed to their accolades in my industry if you like so I think it's often better for them to be outside of your industry okay as a coach because I think that if they're if they're very similar to you they will they will have the same sorts of reference points as you. Mm. They may not be able to provide the coaching challenge and stimulus that you know can come from somebody who has a different range of you know, experience and, and reference points. Just on the mentoring point, I actually I don't think that mentors are necessarily people more senior than you. Uh, there are people that I would look as mentors to me who are far more junior than me, and they are people who give me thoughts and ideas and inspiration that helps you know, me to continue to evolve as a leader. I'm intrigued by that. When it, so, I think it's a really powerful point. Just so I'm placing it, is it disagreeing with the the day I'm seeing you in uh, a thing, or sorry, in a role? Let's say, or is it they're further ahead of you in the journey? So, I guess what I'm trying to understand is, is it that those who mentor you, who are more junior, they are mentoring you in the thing they are ahead of you on, whatever that might be? Is that right? Quite possibly, yeah. Got you. So, and I think it's a really interesting take as well. You don't just need to look up for mentorship. There might be others below or a. a parallel to you who can mentor you on certain things absolutely so let's let's bring that to life so the pace of change with regards to technology means that it i find it it's uh, it's the younger generations who are more clued up and mm. more proficient with that so there's no better way for me to know enough about it to are incredible with my clients and to spend time and to learn from people who are doing it on a day-to-day basis as opposed to me trying to you know learn it myself through the yellow dummies guide but <laughs> Well, and I think it comes back to a point you made earlier about that, that humility and openness, because it's very easy to to not want to be seen as not knowing everything and therefore close yourself off to, like you say, things that actually you're not, there's no better way to learn. And as consultants, the best consultants are people who know something about everything and a lot about something. And, you know, our role is to know who we can lean into when we need to bridge the gap in our own knowledge. And we need to be credible with our clients. We need to be able to know enough to understand the sorts of challenges they're facing. But we equally then need to be able to step back and pull somebody else in who is far more knowledgeable and experienced than us. Yeah, and 
it reminds me of a, a, something I read in a book by a guy called Paul Oberschneider. It's a fantastic story. I'll point you to his book, but he made the point that you don't need the 10,000 hours of experience you know, to be a master. What you need is to know where to find someone with that 10,000 hours. That's often, and I guess it's the sort of thing that, you know, to Linda Gratton's point, that's what I think a lot of people miss of you can be much, as successful, if not much more, doing it that way. So Richard, I, this has been fascinating. And we, as I say, have touched on a whole load of topics I've never spoken to anyone about before. So thank you for those. So we're going to wrap up and we're going to wrap up with a couple of questions that I ask all of my guests. And I like to hear the similarities and differences and equally my listeners do. In fact, the last episode was actually an amalgamation of the, the answers to one of these questions. So it'll be interesting to hear your take. So the first one is about books. So I'm a I'm a big reader and a believer that much like you're saying you learn you can learn from those around you. I think you can learn from those who have been before and have written it down for you. And there's an amazing amount of knowledge out there in, in books. And I'd be fascinated about the book or books that you find yourself giving most often to to people or have had the most impact on on you. So we, we've touched on one, and that's The 100-Year Life by Andrew Stott and Linda Gratton. Mm-hmm. So more recently, I've probably shared that with you know, more people than, yeah, with a significant number of people, actually. But outside of that, it's the thing I tend to share more are articles okay. and things I've come across. And there's one which really stands out, and I encourage people just to have a look at, and it's by uh, Brian Featherstonehouse, who's the chairman and CEO of Olga V1 and it's called Career Rocket Fuel and whether you're a millennial or I'm retirement here's what you really need to get right about work and it's it's a number of years old now I think it's about five years old but I send that to every single new joiner who joins Morehouse mm-hmm. and it's a 10 minute read but there are some really really good points in there and if you could send it on I will put it in the show notes no um, problem yeah, that sounds, it's got a fantastic title, if nothing else. And I uh, apologize, I didn't realize The 100-Year Life was a was a book. So we, we don't have time, but it sounds like there's a lot more concepts in there than just that piece around the five years as well. Yep, absolutely. Um, so last question, and this may very much be a, a recap from things we've already spoken about. It might be a completely new side topic. I'll let you take it where you want. So it's a three-parter. You have three people in front of you. I'll use the, the grade structure I know, and if it aligns with yours, you know, please use them as well. So you've got three people. The first is someone entering the world of work. And I'll let you, it's worth saying, I tend to frame that at university leavers, but I think to our whole conversation around diversity and inclusion, I'll let you take that as whichever age or place you, you think's best. The second one is someone who is around what I'd know as a manager grade. So I always undercut this and say four to five years. I don't think anyone ever made manager in four to five years, but that sort of middle grades where you've you've got enough experience that you've got choices of what you do next and you, you know about the industry. Then the third person is someone who who is approaching, I say partner, but ultimately approaching that decision point of do I do I come on the journey? So it could be someone who's going to do an MBO. It's going to be someone who starts their own business. But that, that point where suddenly, I guess, there's skin in the game, if you like. And the question is quite simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each? So I'd give one piece of advice to every one of them, regardless of grade, and it would be sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. And I think we all need to have a learning mindset and we should never stop learning and be generous in sharing what you know with others as well. Because the minute we think we know everything, Mm. the minute we think that there's something more important than going on that training course or there's something more important than keeping our mind fresh with new ideas and new perspectives, then we fall behind. And as consultants, if we fall behind, our value to clients is seriously diminished. 
Well, and Richard, I think that's a really nice a nice place to end because hopefully you've shared a ton of learnings in this and anyone listening will have got a huge amount from it as well. So thank you very much for that and for, for everything today. The only last question is if anyone listened to this, they want to find out more about yourself, uh, about Morehouse, where would you point them to? LinkedIn's probably best. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I'll put your, your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. I'll also put a link to the website. And all that's left to say then is thank you and all the best for the rest of your week. And thank you very much too. Thanks, Richard. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.